Shalom and welcome to this week's lecture, which is called Becoming a Pioneer. Okay, we're going to have to go through some introductions. First, we'll start with the modern day issue. And the modern day issue to be dealt with is leave me in peace. What does that mean? Leave me in peace. So is there anything wrong? with asking God, the universe, and everyone else to just leave us in peace. Can't we just live a decent spiritual and religious life, caring and tending to our own? The Torah tells us concerning Jacob that after running away from his twin brother Esau, after dealing with his crooked father-in-law Laban, and after burying his most loved wife, Rachel. And then it says, Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Yes, Jacob finally settled. And then the very next verse begins the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Jacob was now entering into decades of non-subsiding pain and mourning. And the question is, why? He's been through so much. Why couldn't he be allowed to just settle and be left alone? Now our sages answer, and I quote to you, it is further expounded as follows. Dwelt, quoting the verse from the Torah that Jacob dwelt, when Jacob sought to dwell in tranquility, the troubles of Joseph sprang upon him. The righteous seek to dwell in tranquility. Said the Holy One, blessed be he. What is prepared for the righteous in the world to come is not sufficient for them, but they seek also to dwell in tranquility in this world. That's what the sages are saying. Now, by golly, dear God, what did Jacob mean by dwelling in tranquility other than to pray to you, study your Torah, to do your mitzvot, and to teach his children and grandchildren to, teach, to walk in your ways? What so disturbs God when we want to just live in peaceful tranquility as we serve him? Now, that's what this lecture is going to look to understand. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching, the Rebbe of Righteous Memory, delivered on this Shabbat in 1969, exploring the spiritual dimension of the tribes of Reuven and God, asking of Moses to be able to settle in the freshly conquered land across the Jordan River, on the eastern banks of the Jordan River. Okay, let's go into introductions. So, Moses, after request, repressed, I'm sorry. Moses, after requesting to peacefully go through the lands east of the Jordan River so that the children of Israel can then cross the river and enter into what will become the land of Israel, were greeted by a response of war, both. Sichon, the king of Cheshbon, and so too Og, the king of Bashan, 
each separately responded to Moses' request by coming forward with their armies. Both times, God commanded Moses to go forward in war, and the lands were conquered by the children of Israel. The point is that this wasn't meant to be conquered as part of the land of Israel. Were they to have peacefully just let us cross through and get into the land of Israel? But instead, they chose to engage in war. God gave Moses the sign, yes, engage, and their lands were conquered. Now, in this week's Torah portion, we read how two of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Reuven and the tribe of Gad, they approach Moses concerning the freshly conquered land. And what do they have to say to Moses? I quote to you from the verses of this week's Torah portion. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, if it pleases you, let this land be given to your servants as a heritage. Do not take us across the Jordan. Okay, Moses is concerned by this. This seems to be a deja vu reminding them that 40 years earlier, when the spies returned and swayed the hearts of the people not to enter the land promised them by God, God was angry, and the Jewish people had to travel in the desert for 40 years until a new generation rose up to enter the land. Thus we find Moses replying to these two tribes, and again I quote the verses, Shall your brethren go to war while you stay here? Why, you, why do you discourage the children of Israel from crossing over to the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did. The anger of the Lord flared on that day. And behold, you have now risen in place of your fathers as a society of sinful people, and you will destroy this entire people. The two tribes immediately assure Moses that this was not their intentions at all by saying to Moses, and again I quote the verses, we will build sheepfolds for our livestock here and cities for our children. We will then arm ourselves quickly and go before as pioneers the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. We shall not return to our homes until each of the children of Israel has taken possession of his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on the east bank of the Jordan. Okay, so there you go. They're not afraid of war. They're willing to go into war. They just want this land on the east side of the Jordan River, which is not the land of Israel proper. Okay, Moses agrees. An oath between Moses and the two tribes is made, and Moses directs Joshua, who will be the one to actually lead the Jewish people into Israel, and the children of Israel on the oath, that if it be kept by the two tribes, that they may inherit their portion of the land on the east bank of the Jordan River. Now, two immediate questions arise. Number one, why would the two tribes not want to rather live within the holiness of the land of Israel proper over being more concerned for grazing their flock? They'll come up with ideas how to graze their flock. 
I mean, this has been waiting for 40 years. It's been promised since seven generations earlier to Abraham. Why would they do that? And the second question is, why is there a specific response to make their wish to leave on the, live on the east bank of the Jordan possible that they specifically go as pioneers rather than just participating in the war fairly with their brethren? Why should they have to go as pioneers? They should just have to go like all the other tribes. Two questions. Another introduction. This week's reading begins with the laws of an oath, and more precisely, the laws of annulling an oath. And so too, Moses bound the two tribes with an oath. What is the connection between the two tribes we're asking for with the laws of an oath? Another necessary introduction for this lecture is the Sea of Solomon. What is the Yam Shel Shlomo? Now in the book Kings, Malachim Aleph, chapter 7, the verses tell us in great detail about the Sea of Solomon, which Solomon constructed. In the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, the reason for the Torah teaching us this in such great detail is because hidden within it is the secret of the evolution of the spiritual worlds in the evolution from the spiritual infinite light to the physical finite realm. Now, for our lecture, what we need to know about this mystical teaching is that, and I quote to you the verse in the Book of Kings, it stood on 12 oxen, three looking forward to the north, and three looking toward the east, and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east, and the sea, was set upon them above, and all their hinder parts were inward. Now, I'm going to show you an artist's rendition of it. However, I must tell you that I don't know where the artist came up with the bottom piece, but just to get a little bit of understanding, a close look, you see that there are the oxen three in each direction, holding up what would be the sea filled with water. Now, the 12 oxen upon which the bath itself stood represents the 12 diagonals, which make up a three-dimensional box. Again, let me just show you an image here. You'll be able to download this later. You see over there, the drawing of a three-dimensional box takes 12 lines. The 12 diagonals, look in whatever room you are, you'll see the four in the top, the four in the bottom, and the four going up. Now, and on top of that, there was the, on top of the, um, the 12 oxen, which make up a dimensional box, as I just said. Now, in the spiritual worlds, a one-dimensional dot represents the ultimate world of unity and divinity called Atzilut, the holiest of worlds, which is represented in the sea itself, which rested upon the 12 oxen, while the three-dimensional 12 diagonals represents the world of separation and concealment called Bria, creation, and the next two worlds lower. And in greater detail, just to explain this, 
the six sides, which represents the six holy male emotion emanations, when they are connected, they create the 12 diagonals with, through which sustenance flows into the lower world. Okay, now, these two worlds, the world of unity and the world of separation, represent the two levels of our forefathers, unity, revelation, and total humility, and the 12 sons of Jacob, separation, concealment, and lack of total humility. Now, the 12 sons is the 12 oxen, the lower world of separation, while the forefathers is the one sea, which is the world of unity. Now, there was but one exception among the 12 brothers, which was Joseph. Joseph was able to absorb and maintain from Jacob the Atsilut unity and revelation and humility while living and engaging in the world of separation. Now, let's get practical here. This is why the brothers living within the world of separation paradigm were afraid to engage with the world and therefore chose to earn their livelihood as shepherds, minimizing the necessity of engagement with the physical and what we call the Chazarai of the rat race. While Joseph took on being the viceroy of Egypt while remaining the loyal spiritual Joseph, son of Jacob. Okay, we're going to soon see how this all plays in. Now, what we did learn is that those who live in the world of separation, those who their paradigm is the world of separation, they are afraid of engaging with the self-centered physical environment. While Joseph, who lived in the spiritual environment of Atsilut, he had no fears of living and engaging in the physical world. Now let's understand why. Another way, <clears throat> excuse me, another way to explain this is that the realm of Atsilut, the world of unity, is the paradigm of what we call higher unity. That is the unity of the verse Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, God is our God. God is one. In which, when we say God is one, what we mean is God is everything and everything is God. And thus, everything is one. Now, the paradigm of the world of separation, the world of Bria and lower, is that of the lower unity. This unity is of the verse in our prayers following the verse of the Shema, which is, Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever, in which we speak but of his name and his kingdom, in which there is a kingdom, a separate identity, but the kingdom is his. This is the paradigm of the lower unity, in which there is a separate realm of creation, but it is all the kingdom of the creator. Thus, we have the difference of God as everything and everything is God, and the concept of, yes, this is creation. It is his creation, but it is a creation.
lacking in the unity, oneness, and transparency to God. Another introduction, holy theft. Now, our sages teach us that in the commandment, lo tignov, lo, don't, tignov, steal, there is a pause between those two words. No, pause, steal. Which kind of, leave, it kind of leaves us with reading as if there's a commandment, steal. And our sages explain this to be that there is such a thing as holy theft. Holy theft is to steal the hot-blooded passion of our animalistic soul for our Judaism. Or to steal from our personal time of play, eating, sleeping, enjoyment for studying Torah, praying, and helping another. That's called holy stealing. On a Kabbalistic level, what this means is that within all of physical creations, there is what we call a fallen godly spark. Now, by using with humbleness, humility, this physical object or experience in serving God, a spiritual experience, we are stealing the spark that has fallen into the physical realm. And from there, we are looking to go ahead and transform it, elevate it into a piece of spirituality. Now, by understanding this, we understand there's something called spiritual theft. Okay, last introduction is the Holy Land versus across Jordan. Now, let us understand what is going on here. According to the law, the Tzemach Tzedek quotes that the land across the Jordan, on the east bank of the Jordan, halachically, from a biblical sense, has the laws of the Holy Land in tithing and in all other laws that are specifically connected only with the land of Israel. They do exist, and that is the legal Torah definition of the other side of the Jordan, not Israel proper, and nevertheless, it has all the laws of the land of Israel. Yet, nevertheless, there is a different level of holiness when we talk about the seven nations which make up land of Israel proper on the west of the Jordan and these lands on the east bank of the Jordan. And thus we have the Medrash tells us in Bamid Barabbah, it says, and I quote, the land of Israel is holier than other and than all other lands, and it explains itself. The land of Canaan is holier than across the Jordan. So the land of Israel is all inclusive, but the land of Canaan is only the seven nations on the west side of the Jordan River, which make up Israel proper. And according to Kabbalah and Hasidis, the difference of the two, the land of Israel and the property proper and across Jordan, is that in the land of Israel proper, we have the holiness of which the verse in Numbers says, for the land is very, very good, double very. And we'll see what that means in Kabbalah. And this is what Moses has to now imbue 
and to make available to the two tribes that would remain across the Jordan that they should be able to bring into their land this experience of the land is very, very good. And now let us begin the lecture. So as you know, I always start with a list of the mystical concepts. So we're going to have four mystical concepts. Number one, uniquely Reuben and God, those two tribes. Number two, Moses empowers self-sacrifice. Number three, understanding the oath and its nullification. And then number four, maintaining both levels. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, in our introduction, we explained that Joseph was able to live in the world of unity, paradigm, within the world of separation. And therefore, this allowed him to maintain absolute spirituality, even while fully engaging with the world of separation as its viceroy, tending to the physical needs of all civilization during the years of famine and beyond. And the reason for this is because he lived in the unity paradigm of God is everything and everything is God, thus he found God and spirituality in the palace of Pharaoh, just as his brothers found in the grassy hills of isolation in prayer and Torah study. While not so his brothers, who living in a paradigm of separation, were therefore afraid of engaging with the world of separation, lest they lose their spirituality. And truth be said, this is precisely what the spies 40 years prior were concerned about when they said, and I quote the verse of the spies when they came back to the Jews in the desert, it is a land, physical separation, that eats its inhabitants, meaning their spirituality. However, according to this teaching, which we shared, all the brothers outside of Joseph had this fear and worked through it during their 40 years in the desert under the influence of Moses. And in this teaching, we do not find any difference between the other tribes and the two tribes of Reuben and Gud. That even now, they should still not want to enter and engage with land? Why? Thus, the explanation here is, that we are not specifically dealing anymore with the fear of engaging and being swallowed up by the physicality and its self-centered paradigm. That was taken care of through the 40 years of wandering in the desert as the flock of Moses. But rather, there is another issue. What is the other issue? Now, our sages state, and I quote to you from a medrash in Ecclesiastics, Kohelet Rabbah, and I quote, it talks over there about um, uh, stealing and then what happens and how it affects, and then it closes that portion with the following. However, Reuben and God, who distanced themselves from thievery, therefore the Holy One, blessed be He, gave them their inheritance lot in a place where there is no thievery. As the verse states, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. Simply meaning there is no thievery there. It's just grazing grasses for them. Now, thus we understand from that teaching 
that Reuven and God had the issue that they wanted to distance themselves from thievery, even from holy thievery. Our sages tell us, and this is in a medrash called Yalkut Shmoni, talking about the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And it says as follows. If you remember, Rebecca was going through horrific pregnancy pains and went to find out what's going on by the prophet Shem. So in understanding what was this whole thing going on in her womb, it says as follows. That in the womb of Rebecca, Jacob made a deal with Esau. That Esau take this world and Jacob will take the world to come. However, later, when Jacob was returning from his father-in-law Laban, and Esau saw the vast amount of wealth that Jacob had amassed, Esau asked Jacob, Jacob, my brother, did you not say to me that you will take the world to come and I will take this world? Thus, from where is it that you have all this fortune? Now, I just want to explain why Jacob wasn't stealing. Jacob wasn't amassing physical wealth for a physical wealth. Rather, Jacob was, and in his own words, I'm going to quote to you the words that Jacob told Esau, according to Rashi. I live with the wicked Laban, but I kept the 613 commandments, and I did not learn from his evil deeds. What that means on a deeper level, that Laban was always in pursuit of physical wealth. Not so Jacob. He was in pursuit of Torah mitzvot, spiritual wealth. And thus Jacob, a spiritual man, living a spiritual life, wasn't living in the this world of his possessions, but in the mitzvah world of the world to come. Yet, nevertheless, and, and I just want to point out that to do mitzvot, you have to do mitzvot physically. So obviously he had to have physical stuff, but that wasn't what he was about. Yet, nevertheless, Reuven and God because of Esau's understanding of the original deal, in which this world was completely his, they wanted to refrain even from holy theft from Esau's world. And now let's see how Moses responds to that. Moses, seeing this as yet another level of fear in engaging with the divine purpose and mission of transforming specifically the physical into an abode for God here below, rebukes them. Why so? Moses, as the faithful shepherd who was higher dot, we'll soon see what this means, from the internal essence dimension of the supernal crown, which is even higher than the world of unity, he had a job. And what was the job of the faithful shepherd who lived in the highest realm of dot, and unity, it was, and I quote you a verse from Deuteronomy, and I will give grass in your field for your livestock animals. Now, let's understand the mystical secrets in this verse. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, there is seed of man, which refers to the souls from the world of unity. And there's a seed of animal, which refers to the souls from the world of separation. Now, the job of Moses, the faithful shepherd, is to give that higher unity to the seed of animal 
so that they be able to engage with the physical world without getting lost in their self-centered separation of the physical world. That's what Moses was all about. And in this situation, Moses would have to feed the shepherd, feed the two tribes of Reuben and God, who will now be settling in a across Jordan, which we said lacks its in its holiness and is missing the for the land is very, very good. Now, in order for Reuben and God to be able to absorb that which Moses is feeding them, even to bring it into the living across the Jordan lack of holiness, they would have to experience self-sacrifice to open themselves up, which is, in mystical terms, self-sacrifice doesn't mean to die for God just, which means to go into the level of love with all your might, surpassing the limitations of loving God with all your heart and with all your soul. And because Ruin and God would need to experience this self-sacrifice in order to draw the divinity of, for the land is very, very good, into across Jordan, therefore Moses tells them, and I quote a verse, if you do this thing, if you arm yourself for battle before, as pioneers, self-sacrifice, and the land will be conquered, and this land across Jordan will become your heritage before the Lord, meaning it too will become very, very good. Now, understanding that they were lost in the world of separation and thus Moses had to bring them from higher so they can experience unity and engage even in the land across the Jordan, now we can understand the story behind the oath. But to do this, we're going to have to understand the mystical insight of an oath and nullifying an oath. So let's get right into it. According to Kabbalah and Hasidis, Chachma, the emanation of wisdom, is the unity dot of the world of unity. While Bina, understanding emanation, is the three-dimensional dissecting of the wisdom dot in the length, width, and height of all details and depth hidden within the wisdom dot. And thus, in the teachings, wisdom represents total unity and humility, while understanding represents the beginning of separation and even arrogance. Okay? The children of Israel who live within the realm of understanding, mother of emotions, in other words, they really are the emotions receiving from understanding, that separation and lack of humility, find themselves in danger of getting swallowed when engaging with the physical. Thus our sages teach us in Ethics of Our Fathers, chapter 3, Mishnah 13, and I quote, Oaths are offense for abstinence. And we are taught that abstinence brings holiness. Now, and the verse tells us, now you, you are, we're understanding now why the concept of a Jewish person wanting to take an oath of separation from engagement 
because he lives in a realm of arrogance and separation. Thus, he's afraid if he's going to engage in physical pursuits, he is going to be swallowed up. Now let's talk about the nullification. The verse tells us, and I quote, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes and goes on to tell them if a man makes a vow. What is going on here? It's teaching us how to nullify a, a vow. Now, what is happening here on a mystical level is that the children of Israel themselves represent the emotions, which are the offspring of the heads of tribes, which are, represent, the emanation of understanding. And Moses, who is wisdom, which is absolute humility, is empowering understanding to imbue emotions with the humility of wisdom so that the children of Israel not need to be afraid from engaging and not needing an oath of abstinence in order to stay spiritual and connected to God. Thus, in a sense, what we're seeing here is that the entire experience of what's going on with the tribes of Reuben and God not wanting to engage and Moses bringing them a transcendence of wisdom, or as it says there, the dot which is in the supernal crown, empowers them to be able to engage with the physical without being afraid. That is specifically what exactly what an oath is. The oath is the separation, abstinence, because I'm afraid to engage, lest I get followed up by the passion and the self-centeredness and all that. And the power of nullifying a vow so that I could engage is Moses feeding the heads of tribes, feeding the tribes that they should be able to have a transcendence of humility, revelation, unity, and transparency so that they don't have to be afraid of engaging with the physical and transforming the physical into spiritual. Now, thus Moses has the two tribes of Reuben and God take an oath, for it is the same concept of drawing the unity and humility of Moses into separation and self-centeredness of the seed of animal living in the physical world of arrogance. Now, the next and final concept, short. The lesson for us is that both exist in our service to God. There is the fact that the two tribes live across the Jordan, which is the lower unity paradigm of blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. And nevertheless, in order to be able to survive there in the lower unity, we must also be able to experience the higher unity of hero Israel. God is our God. God is one in order that we remain spiritual and connected. Now, in closing, we can return to our opening modern day issue. Yes. We may want to live in peacefulness of a lower unity, or as the Yiddish saying goes, good to God and good to mankind. Just let me live my little life. However, shoot for the stars and you will land on the moon. In order to live peacefully, maintaining our spirituality, commitment, and higher connection, we must first be willing to step out of our comfort zone and into the self-sacrifice of pioneering. 
this and this alone what is what solidifies our security in living a peaceful spiritual life in the physical realm thank you and shabbat shalom